The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. I'm to talk to you about education and the battle for the mind, uh, since you're all either in university or have recently graduated from it. I think this is a particularly appropriate. I also think it's one of the key issues of our time, uh, as it is in every time, almost precisely for the reasons that Joe just expressed when he talked about culture. Um, I hope uh, you've got a copy of this handout. It has gone around. I'm going to uh, refer to it at various points. Joe accused me of showing off. Um, and uh, if you know me, that's probably true here because I don't always have a handout. So don't expect it to be repeated in subsequent days. But uh, let me start off with a reference to a man that we all know uh, by the name of C.S. Lewis. And a little booklet that he published um, towards the end of the Second World War, it's called The Abolition of Man. If you've never read this book, you ought to read it sometime. It's uh, very relevant to our own day. Uh, In this little booklet, he noted the alarming tendency of educators not just in his day, but throughout the Western world, is my comment, of dismissing everything that contained uh, predicates of judgment related to goodness or beauty or truth, pronouncing them to be subjective, merely subjective, the matter of personal opinion. And there are personal feelings about these things. Anything that contained a predicate of value was subjective. You could hold it privately, but you couldn't maintain that it was true. They didn't hold that a creator God was the essence of beauty, truth, or goodness. And by doing this, these educators made judgments of even ultimate value to be little more than private opinions. Uh, We we hear often that taste is subjective. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, These are truisms. They're not actually rooted in anything that the Western tradition or the Christian mind, for that matter, will recognize as true. For instance, if beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and that's a true statement, is that an objectively true statement? Is the the statement that beauty is in the eye of the beholder not a subjective opinion? Is that not just your personal view on that? that? Is that normative, that view? Most people think it is. And in fact, the, the idea that beauty, just to take one example, is a matter of merely subjective opinion is so common that I don't think most of us will have ever heard anything different. Um, But since uh, evaluations of goodness, truth, and beauty encompass much of the field of philosophy throughout Western history and encompassed most of what we hold nearest and dearest, our tastes, Um, What is at stake is not only the field of education, but the entire character of our civilization. That's what Lewis maintained. And after all, to say that matters of ultimate value have no real value is to say that life is meaningless. Now, the tendency that Lewis was engaging with in this little booklet was not new. Uh, this, This idea that he was encountering, that taste, was utterly subjective Uh, had been around for, say, a hundred years or so. Uh, But it had emerged with particular vehemence in his time, and it has strengthened since then, I will say. It was the Enlightenment project of autonomy 
brought into the humanities. I'm going to talk more about that as we go along here. But let me say from the outset that Lewis was having absolutely none of it. Uh, he, reject, he said that rejecting the objective nature of moral and aesthetic judgments, which moral judgments are contained in this as well, uh, and the fact that God spoke definitively on such matters went against the whole grain, not just of scripture, but the whole of Western civilization, and not just Western civilization, but of every civilization, as Joe just said. Because every civilization's uh, core values are ultimately religious values. And so Lewis noted, and here's the, uh, uh, actually not quite the handout, Lewis noted this, that until quite modern times, all teachers and even all men believe the universe to be such that certain emotional reactions on our part could be either congruous or incongruous to it. Believed, in fact, that objects did not merely receive but could merit our approval or disapproval, our reverence or our Contempt, sexual practices, uh, standards of public behavior, that we could feel disgust, repugnance at certain acts, that it was not only that we could, but we ought to. These were not only the, uh, the, the, the byproduct of education, they were in, in a sense what was aimed at in education, the inculcation of moral uh, revulsion at certain activities was to be encouraged in students. That would discourage them from doing it. It was part of the, the culture. You can call it a shame culture. But actually, the pur purpose of it is to discourage the behavior. Uh, for example, and this is the handout here, St. Augustine, he says, defines virtue as ordo amoris, the ordinate condition of the affections in which every object is accorded that kind of degree of love which is appropriate to it. Aristotle, he says, says that the aim of education is to make the pupil like and dislike what he ought. When the age for reflective thought comes, the pupil who has been thus trained in ordinate affections or just sentiments will easily find the first principles in ethics. But to the corrupt man, they will never be visible at all, and he can make no progress in that science. Plato before him had said the same. The little human animal will not at first have the right responses. It must be trained to feel pleasure, liking, disgust, and hatred at those things which really are pleasant, likable, disgusting, and hateful. In other words, our emotional responses to things are the necessary product of education, and they're the first thing that we want to encourage in small children. That will allow us to make progress in all areas of morality and in law and in public policy and politics elsewhere. And he's noted that the Enlightenment has tried to sever the mind from the passions, and this separation is wholly at odds with the Christian faith and again with every other educational model throughout human history. Now, Lewis illustrated this point by choosing the, pa uh, the example of patriotism, which is particularly potent because, again, he wrote uh, at the end of the Second World War, so patriotism was obviously uh, a key issue at this time. Now, Lewis maintained that when a Roman father taught his son that it was sweet and seemly, dulce et decorum, to die for his country, he not only meant what he said, he would gladly have done it for himself. He would have died for his country. And it was a part of inhabiting a universe in which doing right or wrong had eternal significance. 
And the consequence of this idea that humanity inhabits a moral universe was vast. So Lewis comments of the Roman father, and it's on your handout number two here. He was communicating to the son an emotion which he himself shared and which he believed to be in accord with the value with which his judgment discerned in noble death. He was giving the boy the best he had, giving of his spirit to humanize him as he had given of his body to beget him. But Gaius and Titius, now these are the authors of a book that he was writing against. They're the fictional names that he gave to it to shield the author's identity. Gaius and Titius cannot believe that in calling such a death sweet and seemly, they would be saying, quote, something important about something. Their own method of debunking would cry out against them if they attempted to do so. For death is not something to eat and therefore cannot be dulce, that is, sweet in the literal sense, and it is unlikely that the real sensations preceding it from it will be dulce even by analogy. And as for decorum, that is only a word describing how some other people will feel about your death when they happen to think of it, which won't be often and will certainly do you no good. Now, there are only two courses, he says, open to Gaius and Titius. Either they must go the whole way and debunk this sentiment, that it's good that others die for us, just like any other, or must set themselves to work to produce from outside a sentiment which they believe to be of no value to the pupil and which may cost him his life because it is useful to us, the survivors, that our young men should feel it. If they embark on this course, the difference between the old and the new education will be an important one. Where the old initiated the new merely conditions. The old dealt with its pupils as grown birds deal with young birds when they teach them to fly. The new deals with them more as the poultry keeper deals with young birds, making them thus or thus for purposes of which the birds know nothing. In a word, the old was a kind of propagation, men transmitting manhood to men. The new is merely propaganda. Now, I'm recognizing that I'm talking about education here, but note here that, and I'm talking about the battle of the mind, but note here that Lewis's words connect to life. And this is significant because they, education and life cannot be separated, and in fact, they are uh, insolubly tied to one another. Uh, and scripture makes that clear. And in fact, when it comes to teaching, the Bible says that life is at stake. And I'm going to read a little passage from Deuteronomy here. It's a key text for education. This is Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, verses 4 through 7, first of all. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And verses 14 to 15. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. And then a few lines down at the conclusion, lines, verses 24 and 25. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. 
And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. So education and life are insolubly linked throughout scripture. To obey, to learn, to understand is to live. To disobey is to be exterminated, to die. This is what is at stake in education. It's not a matter of propaganda. It is a matter of life. And that's because, as Joe just uh, explained to us, that education is ultimately a matter of culture. And culture isn't just a superficial thing. It's not like whether we prefer Indian food to Italian food or indie music to opera. Uh, Culture is the initiation into the very forms of life itself. I know that, uh, I mean, I'm a university teacher, and I know that a lot of what is passed on just seems like information. But even that word information is telling. It's information. You're being formed inwardly by what you hear. This is important. What you are be- the way you are being formed inwardly is that also the way you're going to be uh, living out outwardly. Uh, And culture, as Joe just said, is the outward expression of our religious beliefs. Uh, Some expressions are closer to the center than others, of course. Uh, But all culture is a predicate of religious assumptions. Let me give you an example. I just talked about food. Um, In general, most of us will eat anything. I will certainly almost eat anything. But that is the product of my religious assumptions, my religious cultural assumptions, because uh, for me... Um, righteousness isn't a matter of eating and drinking. That's what the Bible teaches. Well, in many religions and cultures, that isn't the case. Righteousness is a matter of eating and drinking, therefore they won't eat this and they will eat that. Right? So the Hindus won't eat a cow. That's a religious assumption. We just think, oh, I just prefer to eat that. But in many cultures, that isn't the case. So I'm going to say everything is, is the product of a religious cultural assumption. We just don't think that it is because we've never really thought about it. But we can see that life is at stake in the metaphor that Lewis uses towards the end of that quotation. For the Christian, life has two senses. It has a physical sense and it has a spiritual sense. Now the two are distinct, I need to say, but they're not separate. Um, Because in Christian uh, thought, the Bible declares that God created matter. So matter matters to God. God, who is a spirit, created matter. He also took on human flesh. So we can distinguish spirit and matter in uh, Christian thought, but that we can't separate them, and we declare both to be good. Uh, Most religions don't believe this. Most religions are intensely anti-materialistic. They think that matter is evil. It's a heresy the church had to fight against. But every culture before our benighted age of Enlightenment, Uh, And one critic rightly says that in the West we are grandchildren of the Enlightenment, and that means everybody here, most of us have, uh, without realizing it, uh, swallowed the poison of the Enlightenment. Um, For most of us, life isn't only something we have as an individual possession, or at least uh, historically this is the case. Life isn't just something that we have. It's also a part of a horizon that we share that unifies us with our parents 
with our parents' parents and with generations before it. Life is something that is communal, in other words, it's not just individual. But in the Enlightenment's understanding, life is something that is private and only I have. It's the perspective of autonomy. I'm going to speak a lot more about that as I go on here. Uh, but Lewis and Tolkien and most of the Christian authors of their generation uh, who were on the leading edge of what we now call the culture wars, it didn't exist the term in their day, uh, maintained that Christians actually had more in common with the ancient pagan world than they do with, uh, than our current generation does with, with the past at all. So Christians actually had more in common with the ancient pagans than Christians historically do with the, the modern mindset because the modern mindset is opposed to all uh, foundational thinking. They don't think that there's a value, an ultimate value to anything. The doctrine of tolerance teaches exactly that. There is no ultimate value other than tolerance, of course, which is the ultimate value. And the rootedness of the present in the past and of all in a seedbed of ultimate reality meant that the old method of education was a kind of propagation. Note the terminology here. Whereas the new was little better than propaganda. Now, if you read any literature uh, of the time, read George Orwell's novels and you'll, you'll see exactly the same thing. He's attacking propaganda, the state's propaganda, the educational propaganda of his time. And it's opposed to, and the reason he attacks it is because it, it's a delusion. The education is delusion. It's not inculcating people in the forms of life. It's manipulating them in order for some people in positions of power and responsibility to get them to do what they want to do. It's the poultry keeper's treatment of the bird rather than the adult bird's treating of its fledglings. It's not teaching them to fly. It's teaching them to be dinner. This is experimentalism. Lewis calls this conditioning. It's something that we do to others or that we would have others try out on children, but it's not something that we would do to ourselves. Now, nowhere is the consequence of this latter philosophy of education more apparent than in the ongoing political and legal debate between those who style themselves as pro-choice and those who have allied themselves under the pro-life banner, the traditionalists, if you will. At root, in the mindset of the pro-choice movement, is a kind of autonomous pragmatism that reduces all decisions to the calculus of pain and pleasure. These are the terms of Jeremy Bentham, a pragmatist of the early 19th century. Opposed to traditional understandings of education, trying to create a new standard of education, which he was successful in doing, actually, I might add. Now, Edith Schaefer notes of the pro-choice camp and this is on your handout as well. I think it's very interesting. The philosophy of living with an underlying motive of doing everything for one's own personal peace and comfort rapidly colors everything that might uh, formerly have come under the headings of right and wrong. This new way of thinking adds entirely new shades, often in blurring brush strokes of paint that wipe out the existence of standards or cast them into a shadow that pushes them out of, us, out of sight. If one's peace, comfort, way of life, convenience, reputation, opportunities, job, happiness, 
or even ease is threatened, just abort it. Abort what? Abort another life that is not yet born. Yes, but also abort the afflictions connected with having a handicapped child and abort the burdens connected with caring for the old or invalid. Added swiftly are are the now supposedly thinkable attitudes of aborting a child's early security in his or her rights to have two parents and a family life, aborting a wife's need for having her husband be someone to trust and lean upon, aborting the husband's need for having a companion and friend as well as a feminine mate, aborting any responsibility to carry through a job started. All these things go with it. I think uh, Schaefer draws the logic uh, quite clearly here. What is tied up in the political, ethical, and legal debates over the sanctity of life is not just the status of the unborn. It's our entire understanding of what life is and how it is to be lived. If we give on that ground, there are consequences everywhere else, and we can see them. And she describes them. We abort this, we also abort that. Now, one way of looking at it would be say that the, uh, that the debate over the status of the unborn and our willingness to defend or abort the life in the womb has a web of consequences that include all other things in life. That's one way of looking at it. But a more accurate way of looking at it, or a more helpful one, is to put it the other way around. It's our worldview that predetermines what we think, how we educate, what we say, and as a consequence, how we will ultimately act. The landscape of social change that we have seen in the past 40 years, and I say we, I'm not, I'm 46 now, so I am the product of it as much as anything. I haven't seen it all, but I have studied it, and so you can see the changes coming since the 60s, 60s, uh, which have come to include all the things that Schaefer mentions, and many besides, is a direct result of the educational assumptions that have been made in the public educational establishment, which have been inculcated into the people of our country of Canada on a massive scale and have brought some entirely obvious and even for those responsible desirable consequences. Who here has not been through the public education system? Is there anyone? Samuel, two, three, four. The rest of us are publicly educated. I was as well. You need deprogramming, my friends, if you've been through the public education system, because you've been, you've been educated in a worldview that is not only uh, not Christian, it's opposed to Christianity. I'm going to talk about that as we go along here, but I'm reminded of the lines from a recent movie, I don't know if you saw this or not, uh, about Margaret Thatcher called Iron Lady. Great movie. I quoted it here. Watch your words... Sorry, watch your thoughts, for they become words. Watch your words, for they become actions. Watch your actions, for they become habits. Watch your habits, for they become your character. And watch your character, for it becomes your destiny. What we think, we become. Now, this is the standpoint. This is, uh, I love this because it's, uh, as an educator, I've always said this. Ideas have consequences, but they don't just immediately have it. They, there's a process there. 
I want to use a little illustration here, and I'm going to be the first speaker to use the whiteboard again, showing off. <laughs> I shouldn't say showing off because I can't draw, so this is going to be really embarrassing. But um, you have to make virtue of necessity here. This is a sailboat. <laughs> Anyone knows what know what this little thing here is called? Yeah, or the keel. Ah, yeah, thank you. Front and center. What is the keel for? What do we do with the keel? Those of you who have sailed, yeah. You can steer with it, right. So if you've got a simple sailboat, a one-man dinghy or whatever, you can just sort of hold the, the tiller right and it will allow you to steer. And the, the sailboat will go in the direction of that. Sailboat, of course, needs the wind in order to to move at all. It's not going, the keel uh, or the rudder is not going to allow you to move, but the keel allows you to steer. What else does the keel allow you to do? You ever drop the rudder, drop the keel? In a small, what happens to the boat? You can't really stay up, It capsizes. As soon as the wind comes, it goes over. It's fascinating that uh, actually, uh, in, the, uh, in James' epistle, he talks about the, the, the rudder of a boat being the tongue. And that's, that's an interesting illustration there, because that is precisely the power of this little thing. It can steer you in the direction that you want to go. Now note that the keel is a little thing, and it's under the water. Note also that, as I say, without it, if, when the winds come and blow, if you don't have one, you're going down. Note finally, what you can do with the keel or a rudder is that you can tack even against the breeze. You can actually even go against it. Now, not directly, because then you don't have no wind, but you can go with, you put the sail out and you can actually use the wind to move against the, the cultural winds. Now, this is the classical view of education that beneath the water are cultural assumptions, there is something very powerful the tradition inculcated by the Christian faith based on its presuppositions that will allow us to go against the winds prevailing in our day. Now, I want to submit to you that the reason that Christians cannot do this in our day is because they've got nothing beneath the water. They think that all they need is the Holy Spirit. They see the Holy Spirit as the wind blowing into the sail. But they've got nothing underneath the water, so what do they do? They go down. They can't certainly talk against the breeze. Now that keel is Jesus Christ. It's the word of God. He is the thing, the one in whom all things hold together, as Colossians 1, 15 to 20 states. The keel is, as I say, powerful. Uh, what's underneath the water doesn't uh, imprison us to the past. Tradition does not hold us uh, hostage, but it does mean that we can govern ourselves by it. Can steer against the cultural breezes. So we need to understand why we believe what we believe, and then we need to declare them publicly. The way we will declare them publicly, we can actually talk about the heel. If you take my illustration, we can talk about Jesus Christ and the significance of him. Or we can also see it by the way in which we talk against the breeze. People will say, hold on, you're not going with the cultural winds, you're going in this direction, why are you doing that? Well, because uh, 
this keel is driving me in that direction and this is right, I would encourage people to actually flesh out their worldview assumptions, make it clear that what drives us is the kingdom of God and his righteousness. These ultimate values are what our values are. Everyone has ultimate values. Joe just talked about that with respect to culture. Everyone has religious assumptions. Our religious assumptions just happen to be coherent. Persuasive, powerful, they accord with the moral nature of the universe. God created the universe. This is what works. And with these arguments, uh, as our, uh, with uh, Jesus Christ, we can destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Now, these uh, assumptions uh, are what philosophers will call metaphysical assumptions. As I say, they're beneath the water. They're things that we cannot see. They're after or beyond, that is meta, the physical. And they're realities that have explanatory power. Uh, most people think that metaphysics has been banished with the microscope and the telescope. But this is simply naive. Ultimately, we don't even understand why things operate as they are. Most people just assume that they do. And the microscope allows us to see you know, microorganisms, but it can't allow us to understand what life actually is. Um, let me skip over that bit, just so I can get on to some of the meaty and juicy stuff. I was going to talk about evolution, but actually since Joe's talking about it, I'll leave him to do that comprehensively uh, tomorrow. Now, I said that the traditional or the classical approach to education was what historically governed the world of Christendom, or at least it did until the 19th century. And I also said that a rival uh, had emerged against it, which by the end of the Second World War Lewis and Tolkien regarded as the mortal enemy of the Christian faith. The mortal enemy. Now, sadly, I have to say that this mortal enemy is now, long, is now the uncontested enemy of the Christian faith, and it is in our public educational establishments, and it is in our Christian educational establishments. Because most Christian educational establishments have adopted the worldview of the Enlightenment and they simply add pious words to them. They add public prayer. They add a little reference to Jesus Christ, but they don't actually have a thoroughgoing Christian understanding of what uh, the nature of reality is and how it's going to conform with the one who is at the center of that reality. They don't have it. I didn't have it, certainly, going through my educational uh, uh, background, I had to develop it. I'm still not all there. We need to reform our minds. Not be transformed uh, by the uh, pattern of the world, but be reformed in this. We need to reform our thinking. It's a project. Um, and I say that most Christians out of ignorance have adopted it because they have been publicly educated. And the public educational model has always gone under, gone under the banner of neutrality. You know, we're not really in favor of this or that. We're going to look at these uh, different views from a, from a wholly neutral perspective, and then you can decide for yourself what's right or wrong. Well, if Joe, what, what Joe said earlier on about, about culture is true, then that stance is 
impossible anyway. It's impossible to have a neutral perspective on anything. We all, in fact, when you claim at the outset to have that, you are already making a judgment on whether there can be an ultimate truth or not. Right? You've precluded it from the very beginning. Now, the public educational model is romantic. Let me use that phrase here. And by romantic, I don't mean it makes you feel warm and fuzzy. I mean that it uh, dates to the early 19th century, to the romantic poets and authors. It has certain assumptions about it. I want to explore these now. Uh, But you'll recognize it when you hear attacks on rote learning. I hear them on the CBC all the time now. Rote learning is tantamount to child abuse. Memorizing things, learning things that are there and internalizing them is cruel. This is the classical approach to educating, by the way. Rote learning. Um, Or you will hear defenses of child-centered or child-directed learning. That is affirming to the child. Anything other than that is, again, imposing something on the child. Now, note what I said at the outset, quoting Lewis, about the educator's prime responsibility, which is to, uh, to get the child to feel disgust at things that are disgusting and delight at things that are delightful, and from that to build a whole worldview. Note also the Thatcher quotation about ideas leading to words and words to actions and actions, the character and character to destiny. And our destiny is... Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. Does Jesus not say anything about what we ought to be hating? Does does the Bible not speak? Sorry, if I'm blinking, it's because I'm getting a migraine as we speak. It's hurting, it's pressing. Um, The Bible speaks about things that we are to hate. It speaks about things that we are to love. It says that God hates certain things. God hates divorce. God finds uh, homosexuality abominable. These are emotional words. Most people uh, are, want to write them off. I think that they're indispensable to right action. Unless we hate what is hateful and love what is lovable, we can never actually be faithful people. We can't act as, a, as if we were brains in vats and have no emotional life. And that there's no connection between what we believe to be true and how we are to act. So many Christians now go to charismatic churches because they long for the emotional uh, response that is lacking in their evangelical churches that don't fuse the two. I have sympathy for this. But ultimately the truth and how we feel about the truth ought to be wedded together. Uh, William Wordsworth, a romantic poet, said that the child is the father of the man. It's almost like the chicken-egg thing. It's very clever. But what he means by this is that the child is the adult's moral superior. The child, we look to the child, and the child will teach us how we are to be. And many Christians in his day will say, ah, that's what Jesus was saying. He says, look at this little child. If you're going to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to be like one of these. He did say that, of course. Did he mean that we had to act like my three-year-old? My three-year-old has no governance yet. 
I'm working at it. My wife is working on her, but she has no governance whatsoever. She is like the sailing boat, blown all over the place, and then half the time she's on her back, or more, because everything knocks her down. She has no character yet. Um, for Wordsworth, this child is what all of us should be like. In, inherent in that view is the belief that culture, as it's developed, is, is wrong. That Western culture, particularly Christian culture, as it has developed, is wrong. And we need to go down to the foundations. We need to go back to nature. And the Romantics are uh, connected with nature. In fact, the first national parks are, are a product of Romanticism, the Lake District. Beautiful. Their view of nature is nature where no culture has touched it. Nature unspoiled. Now, you already heard from Joe that nature is meant to be cultivated as God commands us. So we already have a view there which is at odds with the Christian faith in the Romantic movement right away. Another poet, this is one of the Victorian period, but operating under the same assumptions, Algernon Swinburne announced the same attitude towards God. Glory to man in the highest is his phrase. And in both poets, we can trace the contemporary educational paradigm back to their core beliefs. Whether we want to trace it through English Romanticism or German Romanticism, or the transcendentalism of the United States and thinkers like Ralph Waldo Emerson or Henry David Thoreau, hugely important and influential American thinkers, or whether we want to trace it through John Dewey into the educational system, it's all the same worldview. Uh, and, and it is in our universities, and it is, it is at the heart, not just of our, the way we think, it's at the heart of our feelings about everything. And this is more powerful. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, when you face a crisis in your life, you respond emotionally to it. Don't you? This is not bad, by the way. You should respond emotionally to things. But that's the point. You need to capture the heart of the child. You need to capture the heart of the child to get the child to do the right things in the right circumstances. You can't think, I have to, let me, let me speculate for a minute on whether I ought to save this child from being run over by a truck. You have to just grab the child, push it out of the way so it doesn't get run over. We can't uh, question whether it, uh, we should stop a man from abusing a small child. We have to feel a revulsion and act upon it. It's not a question for debate. It ought not to be up for debate. The fact that it is up to debate demonstrates precisely what Lewis talked about. Our moral revulsion at things has been so neutered out of us that now we're willing to consider it. So the abolition of man is the abolition of just godly sentiments out of man. Now, the uh, phrase for this, as I say, this took hold in Germany as, as well. And as usual, the Germans are the most rigorous in this, the most thoughtful. And they have a word for it. It's called Bildung. Now, the best translation of this, the one that 
that's usually used because translators recognize that there is no correlation, direct correlation, there's no one word in English for this, is self-cultivation. The cultivation of the self is something that you do to yourself, for yourself, by yourself, and you're accountable to no one but yourself. In other words, it's the Enlightenment's postulate of autonomy encapsulated in the educational paradigm of Bildung, which is self-cultivation. Now, if you're going to be true to the postulate of self-cultivation, then you're going to have to get rid of all the externals and focus on the internal, and that will include um, separating our moral revulsion from things that are morally revolting and our attraction to things that are beautiful because they're beautiful. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, after all. And where the aim is not just to inculcate autonomy, it's to get rid of everything external, everything religious. But this is a religious view, by the way, this view of uh, the self. I'm going to talk about that right now. What is under attack here is a view of human nature. The view of human nature that we have inherited from the church fathers, which is just simply a reflection on what scripture says about God, is that they have rooted out the church fathers' discussion of the relations between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what are those relations? They're the relations of three persons, the three personhood of God. The correlate of that is that we understand ourselves as people, as persons, to this day. We are persons. That is what we in our nature are. Uh, a Christian view of education and the reality uh, and everything that unfolds out of it will be a consequence of the core uh, belief that we are at our root persons and bear God's image. Now this is, this is crucial because in the new educational paradigm we are no longer persons. Because note that persons are always relational, and this word relational is too easily bandied about. It's not just relational. I can relate to the wall. <laughs> I thought I kicked it in for a minute there. <laughs> I can kick the wall, I just related to it. That's not what I'm talking about with relationship. It's a personal relationship to other persons. And there are terms that govern that relationship. They're the terms that govern God's relationship, Father, Son, to Holy Spirit. And you can see how they're described in Scripture. Well, they're, they're those of love, right? The Father submits to the Son, the Son to the Father, and so on. Also, God in his person abhors sin. We as persons will also abhor sin. God also defines what sin is. It's rebellion against him in conformity with what? Or in opposition to what? His word, his law. Right? So person is going to be governed by, by God, first of all, and his understanding, our understanding of who, who he is, and also his declaration of who he is in his word, in his law. 
Now, once we move to autonomy, the law of the self, we have a new category there. We also get rid of the concept of personhood. What we replace it with is another standard of life. It's all just life, isn't it? No, it's not. It's the organism. Organic life. I'll bet you that if I said to you, we want to be more organic, everyone would agree with me. With a few exceptions, maybe. If I said to you something is organic, and I gave it to you to eat, would you eat it? Not only would you eat it, you would think this is the best thing I could give you, and we want to be more organic. You would say, yes, we do. And don't you wish that life were more organic, that we could get closer to nature? Why would we want to get closer to nature? Because by getting closer to nature, we would get rid of prejudices, right? We'd get closer down to the way things really were, the way they really are, and the way that we're meant to be. After all, we want to get closer to the truth and further away from just cultural prejudices. But go back to what Joe said. There are no such things as neutral cultural prejudices. There's also no such thing as natural cultural prejudices. They don't just come to us. They're passed on, and they contain religious assumptions. Well, the organism is now opposed to the person. And the organism and the educational paradigm of the organism is what is being taught in our schools, in our universities, and it's being lived out in our cultural life. The worldview of the organism is all over the place. Now, most Christians, and they're categorically opposed understandings of life, categorically opposed worldviews. And most Christians have adopted them, although they're materialist and they're fundamentally atheistic, um, because they've got nothing underneath the water. They haven't understood the con- the, what is under the water. I said it sounds somewhat blasphemous, so don't take it beyond what it is. It's Jesus Christ, the personhood of Christ. This has, this, the whole world will revolve around the personhood of Christ and his relation to the Father and the Son. And so we go down when the cultural headwinds of our day blow strongly. And they are blowing strongly. And you know what? Christians are dropping like dominoes on the gay marriage issue, on every other sexual issue. And they are mainly sexual. And I'm going to talk about that in a minute, why that accords with the the philosophy of the organism. Um, And I'll do so by opposing two This is where I want to conclude, but it's not a quick conclusion. Um, Two foundational approaches to education. I've already sketched them out there. There's that of the organism. There's that of the person. But I'm going to put them in slightly different uh, terms. There are only two ways of educating. There is, uh, I'll put them in different frameworks. There's the classical versus the romantic Uh, The reason I say the Romantic is because Romanticism has become the dominant paradigm in the Western world since the 19th century. But actually, the Romantic paradigm is just a subcategory of the larger category of, and these are the real categories, it's either personal, personalism, or it's impersonalism. And I think you can see that the organism not being a person is a form of impersonalism. 
the romantic view of life, which is that of the organism, is impersonal. It, it sounds cute and fuzzy because uh, the, the organism interacts with everything. It, it takes things from the outside. It spits them out. It doesn't make any judgments. It just lives. You know, just lives. It's natural. But it's a form of impersonalism. Now, John Frame, and this is quotation on your handout, he puts the antithesis quite well when he contrasts the educational worldview of impersonalism versus that of personalism in his work, Apologetics for the Glory of God. Given that the universe consists both of persons like you and me and also of impersonal structures like matter, motion, uh, space, physical laws, time, which of the two is fundamental? Is it person or is it the structures like uh, matter, motion, space, time, physical laws? I think most people would say the latter. It's not person. They would say that it's the the matter of physics. That's the real foundational stuff. But that's not the Christian view. And it makes no sense, actually, if you pursue that view. But Frame observes that most people will follow modern science in asserting that it is the latter. It's the structural stuff, like space, time. Those are the basic structures of reality. But this has consequences, and this is the quotation. If the world is basically impersonal... It is a pretty dark, dreary, and hopeless place. Happiness, justice, love, beauty might spring up for a while, but they are cosmic accidents of no ultimate importance. Finally, they will be consumed in various cosmic explosions, and nothing will remain to remember them. Ultimately, they're meaningless. If the world is basically personal, the situation is different. Personal values like happiness, justice, love, and beauty are wrapped up in the very core of the universe. Think about how I began with the abolition of man. Talk about the feelings of beauty. Uh, They are what nature and history is all about. In time, it will be the matter of the world that will be burned up to be replaced by a new heaven and earth wherein dwells righteousness. Now contrast this with the view of the highly regarded atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell. And this is... Russell's view, that man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms, that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave, that all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the aspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Now this leaves us with a choice to make, and Frame puts it well again, so I'm just going to quote him. So, is the world basically personal, or is it basically impersonal? One would think that either hypothesis is at least worth considering at the outset of the discussion, but do the secularists give equal attention to both? Do they consider equally the evidence for both? 
my sense of it is that they routinely assume that the universe is impersonal. And they do not give any serious consideration to the other possibility. Consider Darwinian evolution, Marxist economics, Freudian psychology. Did Darwin, Marx, or Freud consider the evidence for the existence of God and then conclude objectively that God did not exist? Certainly not. They assumed that God did not exist, and then they went on from there to develop impersonalist explanations of life, history, economics. Why impersonalist? Because God is person. Why? Because impersonalism and autonomy go together. If God exists, then autonomy is at an end. We must bow the knees of the mind. But if God doesn't exist, then we are on our own free. We can set our own standards, believe what we want to believe. So to assume autonomy, the secularist also assumes an impersonal universe. And Frame is absolutely correct here. This postulate of human autonomy, wedded with the view of life as organic in its essence, uh, was first made by the Enlightenment. It was built upon in the Romantic period, at, but it's not the fringe position anymore. It is the dominant position of our universities. It is also the dominant view of most Christians, I'm sad to say. How many Christians will appeal to Darwinian evolution, Marxist economics, Freudian psychology? They'll have romantic sensibilities with respect to music and writing. They'll have Nietzschean views of power in their churches. They'll have... Uh, they'll make God a pawn in their process theology. You know, God's just waiting to see how we're going to act and then he's going to follow our trail. Or they're going to allow a philosophy of pragmatism to govern their business choices, their family choices. What works is what we're all about. All of these are the products of this worldview, this educational paradigm. Or they're radical environmentalists that just want to get back to nature. And they want the laws to fit that as opposed to personalism. And as a consequence, they will support, to take us back to the pro-life issue, they will support uh, restraining the growth of the human race in order to preserve nature, as if man were not a part of nature, as if we were the bacteria on the face of the earth. How many Christians will speak to that issue? Well, all of these are branches of an impersonalist worldview, and it has become dominant. So we need to talk about how to do otherwise, to develop a thoroughly personalist view of life. If you're lawyers of the law, if you're in other fields, of every other field, how is that going to affect what you do and how you think? Because thoughts and ideas have consequences. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.